0: that beautiful oh wait they're gonna sue me play it hey all you crazy sci-fi fans time for your daily dose of insanity over here at the sci-fi shenanigans podcast just three nerdy veterans geeking out over our science fiction passions a place where the sky's the limit space is a place and nerds run the world and without further ado all right, welcome back to another episode of the Sci-Fi Shenanigans podcast. We're back with another panel episode. For those of you who have cons that were canceled or just bored and need something to listen to, we uh, recorded three of these episodes. This is the last one, but this one's going to be a slightly different take on military science fiction because all of our guests today are from the uh, tiny little island known as the United Kingdom, uh, and they're they're um, something I learned working with Tim is science fiction that comes out of the. Um, uh, the island is slightly different than ours. Their sensibl—ours being American—their sensibilities are a little bit different, and it affects sometimes mm-hmm. the stories they tell. So I thought it would be an interesting uh, opportunity to have some of them come on and talk about things from their perspective. So uh, today we've gathered some authors from the vast array of the awesome British modern military science yeah. fiction greatness. And we're going to host that mm-hmm. panel. So in alpha, mm-hmm. in alphabetical order, but not in order of importance to our hearts. Uh, we're going to let the guests tell us who they are and what they write. And if they have any military experience, they can throw that in as well. So we'll start with you, Ralph. Hello. Well, I
1: know you said not an order in order um, of importance, but I'd consider myself the least and the first amongst this uh, great uh, great crowd you've got here. But um, firstly, uh, Jr. thank you very much for uh, having me. Um, so my name's uh, Ralph Kern. Um, I'm a, oh, I've am been writing for around... Um, around uh, uh, six years, uh, four months, twenty-one days, or, or thereabouts. Uh, probably about three hours as well. Uh, I remember that because I, uh, I I started writing on New Year's Day after a particularly heavy night on the lash. Uh, decided to uh, decided to put together a bucket list, and one of those things was um, to write a book. So um, so that's where my my writing voyage started. Um, I written to this date um, seven books have been published with an eighth coming out on the um, on the 7th of June um, they're split between three series um, the first series is um, called the sleeping gods is uh, what I'd call a hard science fiction exploration of the solar system uh, the galaxy the universe a little bit of sort of a um, exploration of um, you know how humanity will evolve and look. Um, my next series was called The Locust Trilogy. It's a little bit different, it's sort of set in contemporary times, it's more of a kind of mystery. Um, I kind of describe it as a little bit of a love child of uh, Lost, uh, The Last Ship and Battlestar Galactica uh, so it's kind of set in our times, but uh, there's definitely science fiction underpinning the, the mystery of what goes on. And I would describe it as military, uh, military science fiction as well, as there's, there is a massive uh, uh, military component to it. Um, and then finally, my most recent series, and the one which um, I would suggest um, prompted you to uh, invite me onto your show, um, is called The Great War. Um, this is a far, far future kind of thing, um, which when I kind of first came up with the concept, I, I sort of the, the overriding elevator pitch was World War II in space. So it takes the um, events, battles, um, politics of the Second World War, uh, and it puts it into a military science fiction um, setting, i.e., instead of um, Navy wet water. Warships, there's starships um, instead of um, sort of regular aircraft fighters and bombers and whatnot. There's star fighters, star bombers, um, uh, and uh, instead of tanks, mechs, that kind of thing. Um, so, yeah, there's a series of books where I particularly take um, a section of related events and then sort of write a book around them. So, the first one being Dunkirk, second one being the hunt for the Bismarck, so on and so forth. Um, so, a little bit about me, um, I'm in real life, I'm a police officer, um, I've got responsibility for managing the um, uh, one of the cities here, uh, or one of the city centre here uh, in sunny Birmingham. Um, in terms of military experience, um, whilst I was at university, I was in the Army Reserve, um, and then I transferred through uh, to... Um, what we call our air cadets, which is as uh, which is an organisation which sort of is based around the Royal Air Force, uh, in supporting children who've got an interest in that. So, let's say, children thirteen to eighteen. Um, my job with them was as what's called a civilian instructor, taking uh, kids flying in motor gliders, uh, so giving them experience in flying aircraft or, or being in an aircraft that's being flown, I should say, uh, which was one of the best weekend jobs I could possibly think of it was great um, and then uh, and then from there uh, I um, I joined what's called what we call the MOD police Ministry of Defense police um, which is um, sort of a hybrid between a military Uh, or a conventional military service and a police service, sort of like fits the middle ground. I'm not sure if you've got an analogy over in the US, Um, I'd have to do some more homework on that, but um, it kind of gives sort of an element of the the scenarios where um, you you need the ability to respond with um, sort of a paramilitary force, but possibly in a uh, civilian setting. Um, that's probably a very very loose example. Um. Uh, 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 explanation, but uh, I won't dwell on it anymore. Before, uh, before going on to um before going on to join the more regular police. So that is me in
0: a nutshell. So I'm going to be honest with you. We actually just invited you because you guys have cool accents <laughs> and you use words we've never heard of before. <laughs>
1: well, if you don't understand what the hell I'm on about, just give us a uh, give us a nudge, and I'll. <laughs> I'll uh, re-explain in, in, your, uh, in your corrupted version of our language.
0: <laughs> <laughs> so, uh, all right, so next we have Miss Ashley Hi, Pollard. sci-fi shenanigans. Well, uh,
2: I write under the name Ashley R. Pollard. Um, I'm a retired cognitive behavioral therapist, which you don't have in America because, well, you're Americans. Um <laughs> uh, it's kind of a psychologist, but it's a very practical, um, behavioural-based psychologist. And I've had a long, lifelong passion for science fiction and tabletop gaming. Um, so my career started back as a freelancer for FASA Corporation for Battletech. Mm. Uh, and uh, I worked on the technical readout 3055, Um which then meant they had to rewrite the rules because I made my battle mech designs too good for their game. But we won't go into that. (laughs) Um, I've also been a columnist and reviewer for battle games and miniature war games magazines and Games Master International. Uh, Only two of those... No, only one of those is still going because war game magazines tend to uh, come and go. I have... uh, been writing now for about eight years, uh, you know, in fiction. Uh, I have two series that you can actually go to and buy. The first is my Gatewalker universe. Um, and the pitch line for that is um, Armored Trooper Votoms Meet Stargate. But since most people don't know what Armored Trooper Votoms is, if I just say Starship Troopers, Power Armor, in space, well, not in space, but through the stargate you, you kind of get the impression there's three books in that uh my second series is called the world of Dre. uh it's uh, near future i haven't got a date for it but it's kind of near future uh russian civil war where the russians are dealing with european cyber tanks german cyber tanks um sort of German cyber tanks. It's an alliance of Poland and Hungary and uh, the Visegrad group and the Baltic Alliance. And in the editing process, you know, it's ongoing creative arena. I've got a Cthulhu novel, which I have to go back and fix a plot point to. And I'm currently working on the next book, the Gatewalker series, which is a side story featuring one of the characters from the first three books who is a side character giving him his own novel. And he's a spook, and uh, they're going back to this planet to meet aliens and go boldly when nobody's gone before. Is that is that covered base? I think that's probably covered the bases.
0: Absolutely. And uh, last but not least, we have Mr. Tim C. Taylor. Hi.
3: Uh, yeah, well, I, I guess uh, first up, uh, I should say, having read uh Gatewalker uh, books and um, Great War, I'm a, I'm a fan of Ashley R. Pollard and of Ralph Kern. So that's uh, so one of the reasons I'm particularly excited to be here today. Uh, I write as Tim C. Taylor. Um, the C is only there in my professional life. Uh, I think I started writing it something to do with beer. I can't remember exactly why, but it was 2001. Uh, I went full-time 2011. Um, I mostly write space opera and military science fiction. Uh, the Human Legion series is probably my most uh, read. Um, but at the moment, I'm writing a, a series of novels in the Four Horsemen universe, which is a mix and mercenaries, um, uh, a series uh, in Chris Kendi Publishing that's co-designed by uh Mark Wondry and Chris Kennedy. And in fact, uh, in perhaps a day or so, I'm going to start co-writing a novel with my publisher, Chris Kennedy, which is something that's a little bit scary, but I, I hear something that you might have done, something similar to that, uh, JR, at some point.
0: Yeah, co-writing can be a um, unique yeah. endeavor. Or, um, or, or, so luckily, luckily I had some yeah. good bosses. <laughs> cool. All right. So now we will define our term. So what is military science fiction and throw in as much of what makes it uh, different uh, in the UK compared to America when you answer this as you want. And uh, throughout this episode, uh, pepper in anything that makes you guys unique and special. So uh, we're going to do this one, not in alphabetical order because I don't want the same people to get to go first all the time. Otherwise the person at the end just goes, uh, what Bob said. Uh, We learned that already. So uh, we'll, we'll go with Miss Ashley. What uh, What is military science fiction? It's, I'm going to be very contrary now and, and say that,
2: uh, in my experience, defining a genre um, comes up what I call edge rules in gaming. It's when you run your, your, your tank down the side of the board knowing that the people can't swing round and attack you from the side because they'd be going off the board. And so, you know, I, I have a slight problem that every time... I, I enter a discussion about what science fiction, um, it comes, you know, people go, well, it's this, it's that. I kind of know what it is when I see it, but I think the more that you, you nail down the definitions, the, uh, the more subdivided it becomes. So um, for me, I think the prime thing is it's a military setting. Uh, so a chain of command and characters who act like soldiers, marine sailors and pilots. Now, it doesn't mean you can't have a story with uh, hot doggers, you know, Maverick in Top Gun and stuff, but the setting for me has to be really convincing.
0: Yeah. Okay. Well, uh, Tim, you next.
3: Yeah, and I, I'm with Ashley. I don't like to narrow it down too much, and I know, I know when I see it, but the the thing that defines military science fiction is is military. We there's some kind of organised. Um, force that we would recognize as being a military today and to make it military science fiction it could be lots of other things as well but if you took the military aspect out of the story it it just wouldn't work anymore it wouldn't make sense
0: all right and um last but not least we have mr ralph kern yeah uh, well
1: uh we're facing probably the problem you've identified is uh, i do agree with absolutely with both what ashley and tim have said um for me military science fiction well let's pass it down a little bit you've got science fiction um, which generally although not always is takes place in space uh, albeit it can take place in, um, uh, in in on sort of a primarily an earth-based setting even uh, whether in the future um, in uh, contemporary times or even the past um, generally with the uh, trappings of what makes science fiction science fiction is um, some kind of um, uh, science-based um, um, problem or a solution to that problem, um, now to add um, the, uh, the, the bolt-on of military um, part of the solution to the problem or part of the setting is going to be a military aspect of it um, to which um, I think then much like regular science fiction in the defi- definition of hard science fiction or not um, to call something military science fiction, it's got to, or in my mind, I should say, it has to have the authentic feel of involving a military organisation, um, either as protagonist, antagonist, or, or, or the framework of which that story operates. Um, and um, it can be either relatively soft, um, uh, you, you know, with, um, I would argue, something probably like. Um, in my view, probably Star Trek or something like that, where, you know, it sort of underpins things, but, you know, it doesn't really make sense when you when it bears close examination, i.e. why does a captain go on an away mission and all that kind of stuff, all the way up to sort of quite hard science fiction um, where you probably base it on um, sort of an existing military structure. Now, in my view, it's often not sort of as... Uh, or certainly future science fiction, it's not necessarily bounded by what we think is realistic. So, for example, if I thought of um, um, sort of a lot of the kind of uh, really excellent military science fiction I enjoy, uh, you know, quite often that involves sort of uh, guys jumping into fighters and warping across star systems. And it's like, well, uh, you know, it's it, it for an entertaining read, but it's not necessarily um, how I envisage what real future war would look like. But albeit, one of the most important things is a consistent framework and an authentic feeling framework, and especially around the culture that's involved. Okay, and that's my answer. All
0: right, and it is a good answer. So now I went over to the fine folks at Wikipedia University because we know they are never. Fine. <laughs> Uh, and here's what they had to say. So military science fiction is a subgenre of science fiction that features the use of science fiction technology, mainly weapons for military purposes and usually principal characters that are members of a military organization involved in military activity, usually during a war so they could use a copy editor uh, occurring sometimes in outer space or on different planet or planets. It exists in literature, comics, film, and video games um and so it goes on to basically repeat that same sentiment multiple times in multiple paragraphs so i will spare you dear listener since you've listened to it twice before but uh given the definition from the fine folks at the wiki university uh do you need to change your answer tim
3: no i'd go along with with that um i've seen the rest of the the definition but it goes under too many specific things but i think if you keep it it's to do with military i think that's that's fine. I wouldn't say, for example, that it needs to be refighting historical things in space. Well, that's exactly what Ralph's doing a great effect, but I think that's quite – Hey, a, hey. A, <laughs>
1: it
3: doesn't have to – most things don't do that, I think. They, they borrow from what's happened, and they and I think the idea that you said, Ralph, of it has to have an authentic cult- culture to, be, um, to work really well. I think that's an important point. But I think that's probably anticipating a question about what makes good not just science fiction. But, yeah, I'm happy with my earlier answer.
0: All right, Well, yeah, um,
1: I'd, I'd agree with Tim. I'll put more of a focus in that definition on um, the military culture uh, and making that culture feel authentic. There is no difference in my mind that there's a different mindset within um, the military um, than there is perhaps with civilian uh, life. So um, I would probably put a more... Um, the, the culture would be an important addition to that definition, but generally I'd agree with it, uh, with the sole exception um, that I don't believe it necessarily requires um, sort of the, the futuristic technology that it, it seems to allude to, so uh, that features the use of science fiction technology, mainly weapons. I think you can do a damn good um, military science fiction set in our times um, with contemporary equipment. Weapons training, etc. Um, where, as I said to you in my my put together definition, the, the the problem itself might be a science fiction problem. Um, I don't know, stopping a uh, stopping an asteroid from hitting the uh, hitting the Earth or whatever. You know, you'd still use sort of what we would recognise as conventional technology, but it might be military personnel who do it. All right, and I-
2: well, I'm going to stick with my answer uh, because. Whilst I think the wiki uh, definition is is reasonable, uh, the problem I have, as I said before, is defining things with lists of tick boxes. You end up forgetting the most important thing about stories, which is a character in a setting with a problem. So, you know, military setting, military characters, chain of command, these
0: are what make military SF, in my humble opinion. (laughs) Okay. Well, speaking of the, uh, the characters and the vibes, do you guys feel that, uh, the sentiment, um, science fiction, military science fiction written by, uh, and for British audiences is different than say what we would see with America? Um, because every military has its own sort of culture. Do you feel like yours is different or is that universal? Uh, and we'll start with Ralph this time.
1: Um, I think the gap is closing. Um, the U.S. and the U.K. have been allies, uh, very close allies, and dare I say it, very close friends, since um, well, for, you know, for over a century. Now, um, a hundred years or so, or more, um, especially around the uh, age of about World War One, um, our the U.K. military and the American military were essentially geared to, to be able to face off against each other. Uh, which is seems absolutely bizarre now, but that was sort of like a hangover from what happened in the 18th and 19th century. Whereas now um, uh, now we've kind of, um, I think the gap has closed somewhat. We speak the same speak, um, you know, in terms of like NATO radio comms, that, that sort of thing. That being said, our military force is undeniably many, many times smaller than yours, and um, and undoubtedly far less capable. However, what we do do well, we pride ourselves on doing very, very well. Um, so our, our special forces, for example, our, our SAS, are, you know, it's fair to say they're legendary throughout the world, um, uh, and uh, um, our, um, our our conventional um, or more conventional military, I should say, um, have a very good reputation. Uh, amongst um, uh, amongst other nations, or, or, or so we like to think, um, as professional soldiers, very elite, very um, uh, you know, keep cool in 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 fire. But we've also got a massive and long history as well, um, which has again stemmed from the 19th and 18th centuries when this small island we're on had an empire that spanned the world uh, and from our tiny little island we, we were an absolute pivot for world events and we, again the, there's a hang, hangover of us taking a massive amount of pride in that um, that uh, that we still keep keep to this day. Um, so what, what are the kind of differences that probably still exist? Um, I, I th- Again, a lot of our military, a lot of our um, sort of individual mission functions, I should say, are plug and play. Um, the, probably the primary difference is whilst we keep a um, um, a substantial ability to project a, um, an expeditionary force, I, I think our days of being able to um, win a war sort of in a, in isolation, we'd probably need more to view it in a collaborative function. Whereas America. Sh- Definitely retains the ability, um, maybe not the will, but the ability to be able to um, project a significant amount of force on its own and unilaterally should it show, so wish to. Um, it's just through sheer diplomacy that you, you you feel that the best way is to do that through partnership. Uh, whereas if we were to um, if we were to be um, desiring to take the battle to uh, enemy waters or or land, we would probably have to um, start utilising our negotiation skills to try and um, bring in other partners to to support us with that. Um, I'd say there's probably a hell of a lot of other specifics as well that are uh, a difference of our our different um, weapon systems and uh, whatnot. But again, you know, there's only so many ways you can skin a cat when it comes to um, sort of infantry tactics and weapons. And because we've been working so closely over the the last, um, the last well, best part of a hundred years, um, you know, our, our tactics and skills and drills would be recognisable to yourselves. It would just be the specifics that would might
0: uh, might
1: cause some questions or confusion. So uh,
0: don't, don't sell your tiny little island short because if you just resurrect the corpse of um, uh, Churchill and he'd give a rousing speech, you guys would be all over it. You'd be conquering the moon already. <laughs> he had a way with words. But uh, <laughs> Ashley, do you believe that uh, the culture in the the British military is significantly different enough that it affects the type of stories that, that uh, you guys produce? Well, that's really
2: two questions. Um culture difference definitely exists whether it affects the stories that's kind of more arguable um from my perspective i'm very much an americanophile um ra 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 america if i could be an american citizen i would choose to be an american citizen so you know i'm slightly biased and i kind of think the american military is is just well the best military in the world caveats um, don't don't uh, count the British out, I mean when we um, took back the Falklands back in the 80s um, the Russians had to reassess uh, Britain's military capacity and uh, that we went from being kind of somewhere near the bottom you know, down with the French perhaps, to actually um, um, you know they uprated us and went wow who would have thought A small country like Britain could extend military force 12,500 miles away to a godforsaken island in the South Atlantic. And not only that, uh, we did some really quite incredible things there. Um, Normally, you expect in battle um, to outnumber your opponent about four to one. Um, We retook the islands outnumbered by four to one and we are uh, inflicted four times as many casualties approximately on the Argentinians as the Argentinians did on us. So yeah, I do think there's a, a big cultural difference, um, but it's not in those things about weapons and tactics. Cause I think, you know, Ralph has said, you know, we're, we're very comparable. We can slot into an American uh, table of organisation and equipment to you know, supply this bit of the force. Um, but there is something about the British character. Um, one of the things I noticed on this podcast is you, you called me Miss Ashley. You know, and in, in in England, we would just dispense with all that um, uh, formalities, whereas I noticed with my American friends there's a lot more of that formalities, like you know, uh, thank you, sir, and stuff. So I think there are differences. Whether that actually adds up to anything is another matter.
0: Okay, I think some of that, those differences that you mentioned with the the perception of what is polite, etc., is is also regional in the U.S. So, um, what about you, Tim? You got anything to add? You think the uh, British military culture is significantly different? enough that it affects the stories because i do know you produced a certain book about uk military science yeah, fiction yeah yeah so Maybe i'm very
3: interested in the other uh people's uh, answers here because i i put uh, helped to put together a an anthology uh, empire at war british military science fiction in 2015-16 and i wrote an article on what makes british military science fiction distinctive uh and i i think i fell in the trap of uh, projecting myself onto my answer and just feeling I had to reach out and draw an answer. And I've been looking at it ever since, and I don't really believe my own answer, which is interesting because it does match a lot of what Ralph said, uh, which is the idea that uh, a, a clear thing that I can point to, the difference between British attitude and American attitude is uh, – Britons don't feel they have the, the weight in the world to project force and make things happen, except in alliance. Therefore, I, I suggested uh, British authors would have um, more alliances to defeat the the, the bad people. <coughs> but having written that in the article, I don't see that at all. I see it in my own writing a little bit, but I think that's just projecting myself. There's got to be cultural differences in there. It has to be, but uh, I'm not sure I can really distinguish what they are. And when I look at my sale, I mean, I've uh, written or published about 30 military science fiction novels so far, and I really don't see much of a sales difference averaged out across Britain and the UK relative to the size of, of the market. In other words, it's not as if um, American military science fiction is more or military science fiction is more popular in America than it is over here. So uh, it's interesting. There's got to be differences in there, but I'm not entirely clear enough to me what what they are. But I, I, I think even if I'm unconscious of them, I think there will be differences, and I think that adds to the whole variety, which has got to be a good thing.
2: Can I come in and just say something? Okay, well, sure. One of the things I noticed, um, what Tim has just said and what Ralph has said, is that... There's a certain uh, tone that British uh, squaddies refer to their officers as Ruperts, which you wouldn't get in America. And I'm just going to leave it at that, but there is definitely a tone, cultural tone difference. Yes. And, and if I
1: may, before if if adding one more thing. Um, one of the things I've noticed with um, the Great War series is, um, whilst the, the story arc itself is going to be encompassing the whole of the Second World War, um, the first three books are, um, are, are, are Europe-centric. Um, obviously, the US only got uh, involved a little bit later um, following um, the date of infamy. Um, albeit You obviously provided uh, material support um, and uh, diplomatic support before that. Um, but I, I, I've got a lot of reviews and a lot of kind people who are e- emailing me about the um, uh, the Great War series and uh, um, there's several sort of uh, several veterans who who served for a long time, uh, including um, flatteringly one one colonel who served in the um, in uh, Vietnam um, through to uh, through to a few few years ago um and he said i you know didn't have any knowledge whatsoever about dunkirk until the movie came out and I, i was reading your book which was which was really interesting to me because it's one of the defining events of the second world war for us and it helped define what um um, how how we viewed ourselves in the Second World, and and there's no doubt it kind of put us a, on the back foot for uh, for some time. Our um, our, our, uh, our our arrogance, if you like, about um, uh, being the dominant force in in Europe was uh, given a uh, given a good knock. Um, but it, but what's clear is what are major events to yourselves, and what are major events to us are different. So our our historical perspective of the world is somewhat different as well. Uh, And there was another review which basically said the Second World War didn't start until Pearl Harbor. And I was like, no, that wasn't quite the case. (laughs) Um, So, again, it it shows... (laughs) Three
0: guesses where that guy's from. I said three guesses
1: where that guy's from. Absolutely. So it goes to show, even our perspective of history um, does depend on which, which side of the pond we are from. Um, and it's not that they're wrong um, or we're wrong. It's just that um, that, that, is, that is what helps define us. Uh, so it's just an additional thought um, that's uh, where, where we come from, where you come from and so on and so forth.
0: All right. <clears throat> One different I want to see if you can still agree on, because uh, when I deployed to Iraq the second time, we did work with some of the British territorials. And, and they. I seem to remember it was 145 degrees uh, at noon. They stopped for hot tea when we were chugging whatever frozen beverage we could find. So do you think future British mili- space militaries are going to still drink tea? Uh, we'll start with you, uh just so Ashley. Ashley.
2: Just say, Ashley, drop the mist, please. It feels far too formal. <laughs> Wow, that's a that's a that's a question I didn't expect. Um, oh, yes, yes, we'll still drink tea, and we'll have our little pinky fingers out whilst we do it, and we'll have the appropriate biscuits <laughs> that you can dunk that don't break and fall into your cup of tea, because that wouldn't be free.
0: okay. Outstanding. <laughs> what do you think, Tim? Still, still going to drink space tea? Not, not even to say. Are you going to be the uh, the odd guy out, Ralph? You think you think the British uh, future space navies are going to drink the well, tea? Well, only
1: in terms of uh, between you, me, uh, Miss Ashley, and Tim. I, I hate tea, but, uh, <laughs> um, <laughs> but but again, it it comes to uh, it comes to the culture. I, I think that um, between now and the day the sun goes dark, uh, you, you know the uh, <laughs> a um sort of any any kind of um. Um, it's British contingent in in any kind of ex so stellar or interstellar expedition will carry carry a box of Tetley
0: with them uh, for for, uh, for for brewing up with. So uh, I'm I'm from uh, the south of the United States, which has our own somewhat unique culture, and we know the truth is the only way tea is supposed to be drank is iced and sweet. So basically brown sugar water. Yeah and uh in, in some cities in the south they call that table wine <laughs> so the the definition of um for for military sci-fi uh, included the backdrop of war but do you think that you can have a military science fiction story without the war component uh Tim uh, yes
3: uh, most of them do but it, it's not necessary uh, and in fact um my human agent series um the first three novels there's a civil war that takes place uh, and it's all happening sort of off camera the effects are being felt but they're not actually directly involved none of the characters so you've got military operations but they're uh the people they the mutinying and they're um stragglers sort of capturing bases and stuff but it's not Although they're part of an organized military or they've come from it, they're not actually involved in the war. It's all off camera. And that was the first three books. And they, they sold, well, I mean, over 100,000 copies. And they have no one's come back to me and said, you did it wrong because there wasn't a war. Uh, although I must admit, I felt quite relieved when I got to the fourth book and then I put a more conventional warfare from there on in. So, uh, no, I don't agree with that.
1: All right. Um- again I, I i agree it's 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 not necessary um it, it normally normally is part of it but it's not strictly speaking necessary um for me as i say as i said in the initial definition it's more about the military culture um and framework that um that defines it as uh, military science fiction There are some excellent um um, what I consider military science fiction that either don't feature war or, or war is very much a secondary part of it, or, of the story, um, not least, um, and I suppose it depends how you read it, but the way I read, say, The Forever War by Joe Haldeman, it was far less about the conflict than than the returning home. Um, and uh, you know how how the world had moved on each time, and uh, and it, the character I forget his name was trying to um, trying to readjust. Um, and, and back, I suppose a metaphor for for, for what 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 um, you and your your colleagues might have faced, uh, Jr. Your colleagues and friends um, coming home each time and uh, having to readjust. Um, but there, trying to think of uh, some other ones as well. Um, I've struggled to uh, pluck them out of my uh, my dim and dusty memory banks, but um, but yeah, I, I think it's far more important that, or it's far more important as to the definition of military science fiction around the culture than necessarily um, the war itself. Uh, again, I'll use the Star Trek analogy, um, which it sets place takes place in a military ish setting, um, i.e. on a starship, which follows a navy rank structure. But up until uh, was it Deep Space Nine? You know, they they, they never went into an actual war, so th- there's literally decades of uh, of history to that series before uh, before they even um, uh, get into a major major conflict. Yes.
2: Okay. Absolutely, you can have uh, military science fiction, which isn't. Uh, um, about the war directly. I mean, I recently read uh, Brad Torgensen's story, The Chaplain's War, where the war component is really, they're all in a prison, of war camp, and it's just about how they cope with that. And, of course, there's also the other quite famous uh, story, Enemy Mine by Barry B. Longley, which was made into a film, not a very good film, but a film which was all about... Uh, two two uh soldiers pilots star pilots stranded on a planet having to work together and building up the friendship but it was definitely set against a a background of war and i'd also as one final observation say well in real life uh, a lot of what the military does falls under operations other than war so yeah but i'd add some caveats because that's the way i roll and say well you know, um, <laughs> how how you sell it to the reader in terms of the spiel on the back to make sure that they're they're not buying this thinking they're going to get something X and they get something Y, which is not to their taste. So, yeah, with caveats, that would be my answer.
0: All right. So part of what defines the genre are the common tropes. Are there any tropes that you feel have to be in a story for it to be classified as military science fiction, Ralph? Um, the, the,
2: there
1: are there are a platter, if you like, of tropes. And one of the things I I I've found with my own writing is that uh, when when you first start out, someone. You know, you, you go to sort of like amateur writing groups, and they say avoid tropes. You know, make sure you steer clear of tropes. And then actually, what what you learn is as, uh, as you start to sell books, as people want the tropes. It's I, I'll, I'll suggest that um, there's probably like a there's probably some kind of ratio. This is not worked out scientifically, but for in order for someone to find the next book, they've got to know that the next book is. Seventy five percent close to what they like and similar to other books they've read, and then maybe twenty five percent of that book is adds a new take or a difference to it. Um, that being said, um, you know there there are there are many tropes that, that one can take the um, the uh, you know the inevitable uh, sort of conflict between uh, enlisted and uh, officers, the the conflict between um, the military and uh, the government uh, that, that sends them tends to be a big one. Um, not least obviously the the trope of um, uh, the uh, the protagonist relationship with the antagonists um, for, for me one of the ones I'm, I'm I'm going into in the great war is that uh, for the average um, foot soldier or sailor or, or spacer in this case um, and so on um, actually there's probably a hell of a lot more similarities between the uh, um, between the lower ranked people of opposing sides and there is with the with their own with their own kind of organizations you know a, a a soldier from one side is probably going to have more in common um but that being said they've still obviously got a job to do and that job is to defeat their enemy um so there's that kind of almost dichotomy of um you know hey wait a second you know if you Met this guy, or by a quirk of nature, this guy had been, um, you know, born in the same nation as you. Probably be buddies, um, because they have a similar value set. So that's one one trope that that um, is kind of, it, it can be like kind of quite troublesome to um to uh, to explore, uh, without sort of overly giving sympathy to, uh, say, like in, especially in the Great War case, sort of like the Nazis, which are an utterly despicable organisation, yet. Uh, anyway, I'm diving too much into that. Um, yeah, I think you need tropes. Um, the obvious, um, what do you need to in, in it to, what tropes do you need to be classified as military science fiction? I, I, you don't need any of them, but I would suggest that um, you have a look at sort of what tropes there are and think, can, can they be, can I give them a new spin? Can I give them a new take? Or are they useful to further my um, my story or my characters' arcs?
2: Okay. And uh,
0: next right, we have well, I'm
2: going to go with what but- Jim Butcher said at a uh, convention panel once. Tropes are the tools that writers use to build their stories. So, yeah, you've got to have your tropes. I think the... Um, The problem that you find with uh, fandom talking about tropes uh, being overused is what they're really saying is that this story didn't engage me as a reader Um, because there are no new tropes. There are no new stories. All we can bring is a new uh, treatment of the ideas to the reader. Um you know, and that for military science fiction means a military setting, which may or may not be a war. Um, characters may or may not be fighting other people. They might be fighting the environment. You know, um, you could write a story about rescuing a colony from um, aliens, for instance. Oh, they did that, didn't they, in the film?
0: So that that's what I say.
3: <laughs> <Yeah>.
0: <laughs> All right. She has spoken. Tim, do you dare disagree with her?
3: <laughs> well, I hear something about the arrows, so uh, probably not. But uh, no, I, I think that's the that's excellent thing. I hadn't heard that before. Jim Butcher, tropes are your toolkit. Yeah, I think that's absolutely right. Um, you don't need to use any of them, but you're probably wise to to employ some of them as part of your... Token, uh, but I would I would say you need to use the tropes that make your story the best one it can. I mean, I know some people will, will pick things and try to, to write to market, and some people can do that very successfully. But for me, I have to be excited by the story. So I will use the tropes that uh, engage me, and sometimes I start using one, but then it doesn't really fit in the story. So I, I push, it to the, push it to the corner uh, and to the edge so you can't traverse your turret and, and, and get it in the way or whatever. Um, but, yeah, basically they're, they're part of the toolkit, so, but no, no one trope is necessary.
0: All right. So the. um, One of the obvious um, components of a military science fiction is the culture. So the future. uh, Sorry, my son delivered coffee, so I couldn't exactly. (laughs) But um, so one of the things that. all right. Sorry about that interruption, people. But it's coffee, so so you have to put up with it. So one of the um, tropes of the or parts of a military science fiction book is the culture of the military. Uh, a lot of times what you see in military science fiction is a Navy Marine Corps base. But do you think that that is necessary and do you think any of that will change? What's your opinion on, on how you set up your, your space militaries? Uh, it used to be, like I said, it was the Space Navy, Space Marines, and that was the extent of it. Um, do you think that will continue? Uh, will future military, space military culture be based on the Navy, the Air Force, the Army, or even we have a new Space Force? So I imagine the rest of the world will eventually follow suit. Yeah. Uh, Ms. Uh, Ashley, oh, you need to go first.
2: This um, time. That's a sarcasm, by the way. Um, <laughs> uh, I think this is a, a, a very difficult question because we don't really have uh, a solid foundation to work from and if you actually look at space combat and I was involved or I well, still am involved in a, a a group called science fiction conflict simulations who talk uh, discuss the problems of space combat and how to model it in a war game or a board game um things spaceships are not ships or submarines in space they are their own thing so i think culturally they will be their own thing however to address the the question specifically it's going to be a mix Uh, parts of it are going to be navy because navy's quite good at doing long haul missions and the logistics that go with that but some of the operational stuff is going to be much more air force because you're going to be launching um, patrols that go and do stuff. Uh, and then you're going to need the uh, the poor old grunts because you can't hold a planet with a spaceship. So, yeah, it's going to be interesting. I pity we're not going to be around to see it all, but uh, it's going to be an interesting uh, to see what actually happens. So
3: there. Okay, Tim. Yeah, it's difficult to say because it it all depends. So things like technological constraints, because we can't actually go and fight a war around Jupiter at the moment because we haven't got the technology to do it. So that will determine some aspects of how it works. But it does appear as if whatever it will be, the need to be self-contained and making decisions and having all your – a single command decision and combined forces in one place under a single unified command does seem to be a requisite, which does seem to be, as my understanding, similar to the, the concept of the U.S. Marine Corps, which is probably why it often gets used as a, as a model. Uh, another thing about Marines, actually, is for most of their existence, they were primarily uh, there to, um, to board ships and to repel borders. I think you can go back as far as the... Battle of Salamis, where you first see that, that I'm aware of. So uh, I think that may well be, become something that isn't perhaps such a big deal today that will we'll become. Uh, but also I think it will be partly dependent upon what uh, conflicts f- first uh, arrive, because I think uh, my, my understanding, military organisations, they tend to react to the last uh, war they fought and, and be good at fighting the last war. So it depends what's what's. What's going to happen? I don't know. don't
0: know. Okay. Ralph?
1: Yeah, I, I mean, I, I would agree that and say that I don't think we, we really know yet until we know all the first conflict happens. And I think the first conflict will help design or lay the foundations which will then subsequently evolve through future conflicts. Instinctively, I think that probably something like the Navy, uh, would provide the um would, would provide a uh, a suitable starting framework. However that being said I th- I think humanity's future exploration of the solar system, which I believe is inevitable, um, and the um and sort of our interstellar exploration uh which is not necessarily inevitable but um uh, you, you know could happen. Um, they're going to provide different eras and those eras are going to give a different look and feel to how the uh, military works so in the near future I'd say if there's a conflict in space then you know it'll probably be sort of your your, perhaps your new space force that would would lead it is that going to be primarily um, you know sort of taking out enemy satellites and whatnot the, the kind of the very near future thing, or is it going to be, or looking into the future is it going to be like conflicts around the moon or, or, or however it may be, um, which will probably still be controlled by by Earth. As we expand out into the solar system and into the universe, then that, uh, that um, the command structure would have to be more independent. So um, whilst within the solar system, you could still say, subject to its information control and uh, you know operational security in terms of communications, the, the um, uh, you know your forces could still be controlled by earth but let's project far into the future where where sort of humanity is expanding out into the into the stars and where that might not be the case so your your units your your ship or, or, or whatever would have to be far more independent the 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 captains and whatnot given far more. Uh, autonomy and then we'd probably hearken back and we would look back further rather than nearer to the days of sailing ships where you would have um, uh, w- where you'd have crews that were going on journeys for many months outside of the uh, outside of any kind of recognised command structure and you've obviously got the the, the 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 commander will have to keep things on, on task and on mission um, and you know who knows what sort of society or military culture that would um, that that would present um i mean back to what tim says one of the other functions of the marines um as well as boarding enemy ships was keeping order on ships as well uh, so uh, you, you know are you going to find that kind of situation especially with independent commands which are out there for months and years um are, are is, is discipline going to start becoming an issue i'd hope not because training and um training and commitment would would overrule that, but what if it didn't? Uh, so I think it's going to be very interesting. Instinctively, I think the Navy would provide a model. Um, I, I agree with Ashley that, you know, sort of there's elements of the um, of, of kind of an Air Force kind of uh, mission focus. However, the Navy can do that effectively as well. Your Navy has more fighters uh, and bombers than our Royal Air Force, so you can effectively do that. Um You've got um, the ability to launch or the navy. The US Navy has the ability to launch satellites in a limited capacity. So you know it's a fairly it's fairly well independently set up as well as a good model. Um, but I think a lot of it would be self evolved, um, especially if we face some kind of conflict between. Uh, when there's an established Space Force and, uh, and now, where perhaps it'll be sort of scientists and engineers who would lead the exploration. Ben Boe wrote a very good set of stories called the, uh, the Grand Tour, which had a, had a war in the asteroid belt, and it wasn't soldiers and greens, it was sort of engineers and scientists who had to uh, sort of form together a military force, So which might well create something entirely new and different than we could ever envisage. So I think it's an open question. I haven't got an answer for you, and I don't think anyone can have an answer for you right now. But uh, but yeah, that's uh, that's where I'm at.
0: So we actually do have someone who had an answer. Uh, Tim has on his website, uh, thehumanlegion.com, an article about the uh, the use of the old British regimental system for for unit autonomy uh among the stars and uh speaking of their websites all of that as usual dear listener is in the show notes and uh, if you like what they're saying uh their amazon page they have a little bell it says buy you just go there and you click buy on everything they've ever written they really like that that is how you show them you love them and that you like what they had to say um but uh speaking of the military um how important do you think it is for military science fiction to stay on point with military ranking, tactics, and and technology? How far can you stray from today's established norms and still be read? Uh, excuse me, still meet reader expectations, Tim? Well, I like to
3: make it uh, clearly slightly different, at least slightly different, so people aren't expecting it to be the way that the U.S. Army is or the U.S. Marine Corps is, because otherwise, the slightest deviation and uh, you may get criticism. I have to say that I've never had. Uh, anyone come up to me and say, you got this wrong. Well, actually they did, but that, that was in, in betas and alpha readings, but no no um, reviewer. Um, I, I did know um, an author, Philip Richards, who used to get driven a little bit mad, I think, because he wrote stories about the English dropship infantry, and he wrote them while he was uh, a British Army platoon sergeant in Afghanistan. Uh, and uh, he was forever getting uh, told off because he got his terminology wrong by by Americans so you used it to get this thing at the front about uh, I'm I'm British and I'm it's British army uh, uh terminology but I I'm surprised I've never had that because I obviously don't have the well I don't have the, the military background um but I guess as long as it's clearly not quite the same as any uh current based um real military then everybody knows oh, I've got to adjust it it's it's slightly uh, not what I'm expecting. But as long as you're consistent within that, and it all makes sense, then I think you, you're you fine.
0: So is he the one who wrote he the is, yes. series? yes. Excellent. So I've been on a letter-writing campaign to the Queen. She's been ignoring me about uh, releasing him from his service, so he might continue writing that series. Uh, so if you know anybody that, that I might need to write, you let me know. Yeah. <laughs> all right, what about you, Ralph? How, how uh, far from established norms do you think we can stray and still be... Military science fiction uh, and meet reader expectations. Um,
1: as as, um, uh, as as I said before, I think the consistency is is the issue probably more than sort of meeting the um, uh, what what is current. Uh, so as, as long as you have sort of a consistent rank structure that that feels authentic um, and, and is to a certain extent defined, because I think the people who read military science fiction they're quite process driven. They like sort of definitions, uh, and part of the challenge for us authors is to do it without having lumps of exposition in there, if you follow my meaning. But um, but um, yeah, as long as it's consistent and authentic, then uh, I think that um, readers are, are quite forgiving of things like rank. Um, I mean, one of the challenges I faced in the Great War was, so for the, the, um, the Kingdom Aerospace Forces, the Royal Air Force, uh, I decided to use Royal Air Force rankings, rather than um, rather than sort of converting them to a more recognisable ranks structure. So, uh, without going into it in too much detail, the the rank structure of the RAF is is based roughly around the Navy. So you have like flight lieutenants, um, squadron leaders, wing commanders, group captains, rather than uh, rather than lieutenants, um, but. And, you know, majors, captains, all that kind of stuff. Um So, and I was kind of, I was really sort of wrestling with whether I should use that or just sort of convert it back to a more, more conventional, recognizable rank structure that's used uh, elsewhere, other than just with ourselves and the Indian Air Force, as it happens. Um And you know, I, I decided to keep with the um, the RAF rankings, and um, I, I've not received one single negative. <laughs> review or comment about that so which goes to show that even when it's unfamiliar to a reader i.e an american reader or, or whatnot then uh, uh, then they're still willing to go with it and they're still willing to um um uh, view it as legitimate um in, in relation to sort of the tactics and technology technology again it, it has to be consistent uh, within the framework of the story um I, some of the uh, best examples, for example, are Marco Klusa's uh, series, um, where he efe- essentially defines the limitations of his units, as we should all do. But him being a German chap, it's all very efficiently done. And, um, and you absolutely know what everything's capable of and how, how tactics arrive from the personnel they've got and the talent. And it kind of makes sense um, to me. So, um, so, yeah, as long as these things are consistent within the framework of the technology base that you have, um, then the tactics will fall out of that and they'll make for sort of the interesting part of your problem solving in, in your uh, in your main
0: story. And you just uh, illustrated one of the differences for American ears is we say lieutenant and you say left. <laughs> That's right, yeah.
1: We even, we even have
0: uh, some of sergeant
1: differently, depending on what regiment you go to, so some people it's uh, S-E-R-G-A-N-T, and for other regiments it's Sarge, but it's S-A-R-G-A-N-T, uh, which is, uh, you know, again, you're probably going to go into warily uh, so to speak, and, and uh, at some point explain that, um, that that's a regimental difference, uh, rather than, uh, you,
0: than a rubbish proofreading. <laughs> And some of that has creeped in. Uh, some of the military documentaries, if you watch, like on uh, I don't know Nat Geo, Curiosity Stream, wherever you find them, uh, well, they'll have if it's produced uh, in the the UK, they'll have it spelled wrong. And then you read the comments, and everyone's like, "You can't spell! How dare you put that on the screen? Spelled wrong!" <laughs> I've seen that in some of the reviews. All right, so Ashley, how far do you think you can stray from established norms? Uh, and still meet reader expectations? again, another great question. I think it comes down to
2: setting. Um, Both of my series are written in the near future, so I don't really stray from the current norms. So my American Gatewalker series uses American um, rank structures, Uh, though I mix it up by having the setting as a unified combatant command. So I've got you know Air Force, Navy, Marines, etc., soldiers uh, there, which allows for a little bit of dialogue interactions. Because you know, get my civilian characters. Well, why is this character called this? Why is this character called that? And I can have a little gloss where the 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 Marine says, "Well, you know, he's an Air Force and he's Army, and I'm Marine, and you're going to call me this because that's the way it is in the Marines. But I'm the same rank as that person there." you call something different. So, you know, it, it can be a useful thing. Um, when I was doing the Russian series, I actually had to go away and research all the Russian ranks and uh, I put them in a glossary in in, in, in the books uh, because, you know, they they don't have, I mean, they have their equivalents, but they don't call them privates. It's called Radoiva and Efrito and Mlitsche Sargent. You know, for their names, which I have all in the books. Um, so I'd argue that if you're going to do a far future setting, um, then you, you really need to make your ranks a part of the world building. And, uh, you know, we have a lot of history that we can call back on. We can go back to the Greeks. So we can go back earlier than that to Chinese history even. And you can farm that and 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 uh, or mine it for interesting... Uh, Interesting. It's oh, I was thinking of one. Sorry, I got distracted. Michael said Williamson wrote a book a long time to now, uh, which is a military story set in the past of future time travel, and uh, he addresses that very same thing where the Americans are talking to some Romans they meet and. And the, the, the squaddies are saying, basically, well, you know, call a lieutenant. He should be a, a centurion. And, and one of the guys say, no, no, because a centurion is not an officer. He needs to be called a legate. Uh, and that's what they do. So I think, yeah, yeah, that's the way you go with it.
0: Okay. I've read that book. Even have a review for it on my website. Um, so that was, that was interesting. I understand he's even going to write a part two. So... This is a reader-submitted question that they wanted us to discuss, Um, but we see some military science fiction stories include a romantic element, Um, so do you think that you can have a romantic element and it still fit with reader expectations for military science fiction, or does that make it uh, transition into being a sci-fi romance novel? Uh, and Ashley, you're first this time, but not just because you're a okay. girl, I promise. It's just, well, I'm rotating through.
2: As, as the token <laughs> girl, um, I'd say only with the lightest of touches as part of the character development. So as Tim will tell you, because he's read my books, there's some romance uh, between a couple of the characters, but it's not front and center. It's just, oh, they they hang out together. Um, one of the biggest... Disappointments that I've read recently was a, a series by, dare I say it, Rachel Bach, who did a paradox uh, porn uh, trilogy, uh, a really interesting power armor in space, which gets the merchant background as a mercenary. And, and it was, I loved all that bit of it, but the romance was so front and center that uh, uh, she sacrificed. Um, the military aspects of the novel or the paramilitary aspects of the novel with the romance. So yeah, that didn't work so much for me. Good story, but didn't work for me. Okay. Yeah.
3: Yeah. I mean, I, th- I think you asked, does it uh, fit in with reader expectations? And I think the answer to that is depends on the reader and depends upon what that reader wants at the time. Um, so, I mean, I've, I've read uh military SF with, with romance and as long as it doesn't break the military aspect, which we've said several times, it's important. It's authentic. Uh, then, yeah, I, I, I quite like that personally, not always, but from time to time, it's very difficult to write though, because, uh, well, I mean, I, as with the Gatewalker series, I mean, the characters that, that, that Ashley wrote there, well, they're kind of busy. Uh, most of the novel, they don't really have time to sort of sit down and, 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 and <laughs> mooch at each other. And and I think that's that's the problem I've I've found writing as well. I, I, I've i intended to put in uh romantic threads in a number of books and then there's been no no way to put that in easily uh which I guess is is quite realistic. But it's all happening off camera or or elsewhere. Uh, but other people um love it, I must admit. But I mean one of the one of my first um uh my first book i wrote for the four horsemen universe for example uh i got a a one-star review on amazon because uh it had broken the whole attitude of the four horsemen series by having character development and i thought that was a betrayal um so you know other people obviously will say well that's that's brilliant because that's we like it." not the other books didn't have character development i don't know why they they said that but you know it, it just goes to show you can't do anything um with the expectation you're going to please every reader because they all come with a different set of expectations and, and prejudices.
0: Okay. And Ralph, um
1: romance and military cypher? There are as many answers to this as there are readers uh, who will potentially read your books, uh, and each one has a different tolerance for it. Um, I mean, personally, I, I deal with it, it, it with a very light touch. However, I do... Um, acknowledge that um, well w- what is the reasons why we why we fight often it's for family friends and loved ones um, if we pass that down into the loved ones that inevitably means that there's romance involved there somewhere um, and also you're got to balance that against the fact that generally you're, uh, you're um, uh, any military is going to be primarily staffed with relatively young people um, you y- you know, I think in in a, in lots of media, sort of the uh, the average age of of your of soldier, a squady sailor or whatnot, seems to be magnified by a, by a, <laughs> doubles the age, isn't it? Mostly they're sort of eighteen to twenty five year olds or thereabouts who inevitably <laughs> are going to be uh, are going to be interested in one another if it's if it's a mix, mixed mixed uh, well I suppose not, not even if it's a mixed um, gender crew, but um, you know, um, personally, I deal with it with a light touch. However, I do sort of acknowledge it on occasion. Um, and again, one of the things you've you've got to tread warily of is that uh, different readers and reader groups have different tolerances to moral values. So, um, for example, there's, there's certainly when I was in the um, um, serving in the reserves and uh, in my earlier days as a um, as a police officer. Uh, shall we say, sports sex wasn't uncommon. Um, but, you know, that might not fit in with the moral values of, uh, of someone who who believes that, um, you know, relationships should be, uh, you know, strictly within a, um, a, a family background. So you've got to kind of tread warily with it. And the one thing I've learned is, uh, it, you know, probably probably sort of give a nod to it. It's an important part of the human condition, but um, uh, but generally the readers, I don't think, want a, a, a military fiction science fiction don't want to duck down into into the nitty-gritty shall we say
0: okay and uh that's also especially important if you have uh family members as your first line readers i had a scene of such in my Demons of Corella story in, in Tim's universe, and my mother was reading it, and she sent it back with a note that was politely saying, I don't know what you and your wife are doing, but you need to practice and do it better because this sucks. <laughs> and uh, I have never included another one of those scenes <laughs> again. Well, when, when, so when you, when, I definitely, I definitely. When your parents
1: say uh, you need to find it, Jesus, it, it, <laughs> you, know, <you've>, uh, <laughs> you know you've done something right or wrong. <laughs>
0: All right. So, speaking of uh, the combat, which we've talked about before, um, how do you balance the uh, reader expectations for weapons in science fiction uh, with the what we call the rule of cool? And today, uh, Tim, you're first.
3: Well, it's just as, as we've said, the last question really, different readers look for different things. Um, and I mean, I write novels in, a, in the mech series these are caspers camber Salt system personal uh i don't really believe in mechs but that doesn't matter because uh the characters do and it's authentic and it all makes sense within the uh context uh and as long as as long as it's consistent and as long as it feels authentic i think a lot of people will be happy to run with that. And of course, there are mechs on the covers, and that's where cover art becomes very important because if you think, oh, I don't like mechs, that's a silly idea, you won't buy the book, which is absolutely fine because there are plenty of people who, who love to do exactly that. So, yeah, it, it, you can play it in different ways. But certainly, if if something is really pretty cool in the rule of cool, it, it gives you uh, a lot of uh, excuses. You, you can You can excuse a lot of that if something's really cool.
0: All right, Ralph.
1: Um, how I think if we have realistic space combat, it would be first shot, first kill from beyond visual range. Um, you, you know, you'll be um, you'll be firing at a dot on a radar uh, and the people on the receiving end. The first they'll know about it is when they're dissipating atoms. Um, <laughs> spaceships are probably going to be quite delicate things, even if they are by uh, their own. Sort of token, sort of heavily armoured warships or whatever—it's still going to be sort of, you know, over very quickly, which probably doesn't make for sort of that dramatic scenes. Although, albeit David Waver does it very well in uh, in the Honor Harrington series, so it can be done. Um, If we go to the other side, you've got the the, with the rule of cool side of things. um, You know, there's no doubt that things like uh, you know your Star Wars battle, well, your, your Rogue One and before battles, rather than the new series, are spectacular visual fests um, and you can certainly do a uh, you know an excellent sort of literary versions of those as well. Um, so, in the Great War, for example, um, there's lots of kind of dogfights between fighters with sort of like some some nods towards like real physics. You know, they have to sort of decelerate into battle and rather than accelerate into battle often and things like that, uh, but um you know it's mostly setups to try and create those kind of swirling dogfights of, of of World War Two, which I don't believe for an instant would be anything like what realistic military or space military conflict would be like um then on the other side I've got Erebus uh, where I have a number of um what what I would need to be sort of re- Relatively realistic sort of space battles as well, and I worked hard to still make them dramatic and uh, whatnot as as the sort of tussling and using uh, skills and um, uh, knowledge, experience, and tactics to to try and get the first first strike on their opponent rather than it being about the battle itself. Um, and so, yeah, it's it's, it's It's an interesting one. Both can work. Both can work. But again, it all comes back to the consistent framework of what what you're writing in.
0: Okay, And uh, Ashley?
2: Gosh, well, Ralph and Tim have kind of nailed it. But what I would say is that you can make any weapon fighting story boring. It's very easy to make a combat sequence boring um, by not um, choosing your timing and pacing and stuff. grips the reader so for me i'm kind of thinking it's all about the setting and your assumptions about your setting so i write fairly near future 60 no more than 60 years out so all the weapons i'm going to be featuring are, are, are not too outrageous because um they have to be plausible within the setting. Though of course, when my characters meet aliens who have technology that's, you know, Clark Tech, then I can I can have a bit of fun with that, and but I don't explain much about it. I just explain the effects. Um, if I were to do a far future setting, and I do have a plan to do a, a sort of, Gundam space opera type of sto- story at some point, then I would want to be using exotic energy weapons and thinking about. The second order effects, like like Ralph said, you know, the spaceships are going to be hundreds of thousands of miles away at first contact and probably won't close any closer than 10, 10 20,000 miles, you know, thirty thousand kilometres. I mean, they are just dots at that point. So you you've got to think about how you're going to make uh this compelling. How do you raise the tension when Uh, You know, there's a light delay between your spaceship that's in seconds, you know, because it's so far away. So it's a difficult thing. But um, yeah, rule of cool, you know, Farscape, I thought I had the best rule of cool when uh, John Crichton uh, magicked up a, a wormhole and said, you don't want me to do this, but you're forcing me to do this pull the wormhole up and everything starts
0: falling into the wormhole.
2: So it can be done.
0: Yeah, definitely. All right. That's a a lot of detail to throw into a scene. Speaking of details, what level of detail do you need for it to uh, please readers in military science fiction? Do we need to get to the point where we have technical specs for all the spaceships? And if you can do that, by the way, Elon Musk wants you to call him uh, in weapon systems, or can you just wave your hand and call it a blaster and move on? Ralph. Um, both, uh, are,
1: are perfectly, perfectly valid. Um, one only has to look at the, um, um, uh, you know, the amount of, uh, source books for various, um, various role-playing games, uh, and, uh, you know, even TV series and other books, uh, and other stories. So, you know, the, uh, the you know, like the enterprise technical manual, for example, you know, it's, it, and, uh, to know that there's definitely an audience for that, but then you swing it to the other side of the um, uh, of the spectrum, uh, and um, you've got like say um, the Galaxy's Edge series, where a blaster is just a blaster, and, uh, uh, and Nicole and Jason Arnsbich almost aggressively dismiss anyone who wants um, who, who wants anyone to sort of duck down into any detail of that because they don't want that to eclipse um other aspects of the story so y- you can cater towards both I probably it depends what story I'm writing so for the great war um it, it, you know I define the tactics I define roughly what what the capabilities are of these um, of the ships and you know it's basically there to try and simulate the kind of events and um and battles of um of World war Two. so i've kind of kind of forcing the technology into those kind of, into those situations. Um, but then on the other side, on 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 Erebus, I go, and the sleeping gods, I go into an immense amount of detail. Um, and the, the, there's readers who appreciate both ends of that. Um, but I think naturally I'll probably fall about sort of 75% towards the detail side of things. I like to know what I'm dealing with. I like to explain to the readers and, uh, um you know one of my big challenges is often um passing back on exposition once i've read it once i've written a story to then sort of like turn it from a technical manual into uh into a
2: compelling uh, reading experience okay. wow well, ashley uh, this is a really fine line to ride so in terms of technical specs, I would only go into that if I was writing a set of rules for a game, which I have done in the past. Um, I wrote a set of rules called Omu War Machine. Don't bother looking for it. It's been long out of print. It's about nearly 30 years ago. Um, so, I, But I have to kind of own up and admit that I'm guilty of putting in glossaries of technical details in the back of my books. Um, and I have little jokes and if you read the glossary and you're you're a bit of a military military buff um you'll get references to technical manuals uh you know uh, a definition of a piece of equipment that says then refer to this technical manual just because again that's the way I roll um but my characters uh, my characters just treat the stuff as stuff it's like it's a it's a a suit it's a gun it's it's a rocket pack that they they, they kind of do geek a little bit about uh, rotary cannons I have a, a couple of sergeants uh, in one scene in the first novel going yeah g cows are great because you know just does the biz um so they'll they'll call the stuff by its proper name or nomenclature but they're not going to wax lyrical on the perceived advantages of a 45 caliber over a nine mil. For instance, because it's just a pistol, and if you want to bring down the pain, you need more than just a pistol. You're talking about artillery, aren't you? There you go.
3: <laughs> All, right, All right, Tim. I remember that scene actually. Actually, just talked about, and it's an excellent way of just slipping it in. I think that's an important thing. You're talking about the right loadout for the for the mission that's about to come, um, and I think that's there's certainly a lot of people who who really like that. The, Technical detail, but the um, if you're going to go down that that route, it's the way to uh, feed the detail and to keep the consistency without overloading an exposition in ways that seem inauthentic uh, for the readers who aren't particularly uh, interested. And nobody really wants. To, well, I mean, some people are very happy for the the narrative to stop and then there'll be five paragraphs detailing the precise details of the technical specs. Um, but there are others who who aren't. Um, but certainly one of the things in terms of uh, of fans, fans seem to be particularly interested in precise details of all weapons specs and uh, TOs and E's and so on. Um, so you may get a slightly um, distorted view because the people who are really into that are more likely to be really into the fan clubs on Facebook and that that kind of thing. But I think it's it's imp- it's useful if you have the detail in your head all worked out and you're consistent. I think it's that people talk about the iceberg idea of your world building. If you've figured it all out, uh, then it's, it's by some magical process, it's, it's kind of detectable from the bits that you you portray to the reader that the, the, the fundamental underpinnings are there, even if you're not actually uh, giving the details.
0: All right. That sounded intelligent. So I'm going to smile and nod and pretend like I could wear my glasses. Uh, so, speak- That's <laughs> so speaking of details, uh, how do you handle the details of daily life for the average soldier? So soldiers. So we're talking your MREs, late pay, cheating lives, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. Oh, well, actually rule number one, isn't it? Don't be boring. Um,
2: if you're going to include this stuff, uh, it must be something to be overcome or to develop a character or a solution to a problem. So, um, you know, I have I have I think I have scenes um, where characters go. I do know I have a scene where a character is taking a shower, you know. So, yeah, these things are there, but um, just don't be boring. Basically, um, it has to be relevant to either the setting, the character or the problem.
0: All right. You heard it here first. The rule of science fiction. Don't be boring. All right,
3: Tim. Yeah, I like to, to, to feed in bits and pieces that aren't necessarily essential, but give a little bit of color, make it a little bit um, authentic. So things such as you know letters from home or um, misunderstandings, things going amiss, uh, weapons jamming, well, that obviously could be quite dramatic, um, the food tastes terrible, all these sorts of things, just a little bit thrown in there. It, it makes it feel a little bit more uh, lived in. I guess than if everything always works first time, and the only thing everybody ever thinks about is the next battle. All
1: right. Yeah, Al. I, I would totally agree with um, with Ashley and uh, Tim on there. It, um, uh, firstly, Ashley's uh, you know rule of don't be don't be boring or the Chuck Manley rule, as we call it. Um, the and uh, as Jay, as Tim has said the. Um, um, you know, making the, the universe feel lived in and authentic and uh, again one of the things that um, military science fiction often does is uh, and it there tends to be a lot of military veterans who, who read it read that kind of thing they and people who want to join the military and uh, it, it, you know they're, they're for the people who want to join the military they tend to be quite interested in that and for the uh, for the um, People who uh, who have served, it it tends to engender sort of either an affectionate or not so affectionate eye roll, uh, you know, about the MREs and and whatnot. Although, uh, um, so yeah, I I like putting in those details as long as they don't um uh, overwhelm the uh, overwhelm the story. Uh, Generally, the, the you know I keep I keep them sort of. It's relatively small uh, but I do think they help build character and uh, uh, or help build characters you know how your characters react to these c- kind of things as well there's some people who stoically eat whatever's put in front of them for example there's other ones who <laughs> you know who want uh, who want the finest cuisine and, uh, and whatnot and so it it can be used as important character development and uh, and to help the universe
0: feel authentic Okay, now that we've covered the broad strokes, what do you think makes good, a bad, or great military science fiction? Um, so we went with Tim first, or Ralph.
1: Um, as the the authentic framework for me is, is what what does it um, along with great characters uh, who who react, you know, in ways that um, one would one would expect in those situations as well, uh, and. I mean one of the things we haven't touched on really is is characters um and it, it, they are so important to making um making the, the the story feel um real so it's how the whatever the situation whether it's sort of a contemporary science fiction using contemporary weapons against the alien blog who are you know coming down or or whether it's something in the far future um, it's how the characters deal with the uh, situation keeping because your characters your window into that story um and personally i like uh, i like the, the the camera quite close on the shoulder so to speak um but then also i like it to pan out as well on occasion and show the bigger the bigger picture perhaps um so so yeah great characters is it is is, is is great memorable characters is is as part of it um bad science bad military science fiction um for me i'm, I'm, I'm a bit ocd and it's people who don't really do their homework on on the basics uh that that, that kind of grates me a little bit um so, you know, they haven't got sort of their rank structures down, a, lot, a consistent rank structure down or, or, you know, people are doing strange or inconsistent things. Um, yeah, you can always have your wildcard character, but they should still be kind of operating within a, a wider framework. And so, yeah, lack of homework is a, is a, is a big, big, big thing
2: for me. Well, All right, um, I'm going to have to go with what Ralph said. I mean, it's got to be characters that the reader can relate to uh, with real problems that threaten the character without causing the reader to suspend disbelief. So, you know, um, if one of your characters is using Tabasco sauce to fend off the Rigelian um, uh, leeches, uh, you better have a good reason why Tabasco sauce does that uh because other people go you what tabasco sauce is really great i love tabasco sauce so you don't want to be um suspending their disbelief um though on the other hand i I, i'm reminded of skippy's rules of things he's no longer allowed to do which is a a meme that uh, hopefully you guys have come across on the web and it it it, that i'm told that uh all these things that are on this list um, are based on real things that real doofuses, wingnuts, whatever you want to call them, have done, uh, which have caused you know signs to be put on doors t- to bathrooms that says "No horses allowed." So you know. <laughs> um, but again, I suppose uh, I would say light seasoning uh, for this kind of stuff because uh, you, you throw too much in. You know, people are going to what kind of military is this? You know, um, so, yeah, uh, do your homework. I mean, I'm not military, uh, but I heard some very complimentary things said to me about my mil- about the amount of research I did for my military books. Uh, and yeah, do your research. That's All
0: it. Right, All right, Tim. How do you follow that?
3: Well, I mean, the readers—they uh, live your story through your characters, so it's no different from from other uh, forms of fiction. You need to have good characters you can relate to, and give them good problems. I mean, for me personally, I like to have uh, get the sense of interdependency between people uh, who are in a in a in a shared um, environment, or usually a um, you know, the same unit uh, who will um, – it, it, because it's it's a situation that, that perhaps people aren't normally involved with. You, you have to make yourself vulnerable and you have to rely upon other people explicitly. That's quite an interesting thing for me. I want intensity as well, at least in some parts uh, of the story. The thing that for me makes bad science fiction is is lazy, lazy Hollywood cliches, basically, that, that are inauthentic. And I think – I'm happy to make allowances for the visual medium, perhaps rather or more, and I wouldn't do it with, you know, where the stormtroopers always miss and the Daleks always miss. Um, You know, that's all right under Tilly. You don't take it seriously anyway, but I wouldn't. That's inauthentic, and it wouldn't work for me uh, in the form of a novel.
0: telly. okay, another one of those British words for you. I hope you're taking notes, dear listener. So we have another fan-submitted question. So they wanted to know uh, what the panel would thought of the use of acronyms in military science fiction and where the line is between uh, just enough and too much and not enough. So actually this time. Them,
2: but I do admit that when I'm reading a, a new book, if I get too many TLAs uh, in the text, I kind of go, do what? Uh, what's that mean? And I have to scan back. So I think there's an element of craft um, that has to be used If we're going to use acronyms and TLAs. uh, Three-letter acronyms is what TLAs is. The military love them. Um, So what I do is, uh, for a start, I put a glossary in the back of the book so that people can just flick through and go, oh, yeah, what's that? Uh, But when I introduce an acronym, I always add a little gloss the first time I use it. And if it's a rare term that only appears once or twice within the story, then I'll then I'll remind the reader with a, sh- a shorter gloss. A gloss is uh, just a, a piece of craft business where you go, oh, map, uh magnetic anomaly project, for short, you know, like that. I think that's kind of useful because um, there's nothing worse than throwing the reader out because they go, what does that? What does that? What does
3: that mean? Yeah. Okay. Tim. Yeah, I I I, I'm not a massive fan. I I do read some military SF. I think it get a little bit overloaded, but I do certainly put them in, um, and I think they're uh, t- to me, um, it's a bit like a, a secret code that you share between yourself and the reader. It's a, it helps to make it special to them uh, so it's not just acronyms but special terms that are unique to your to your setting i i do like to put them in but i'm i'm careful not to overload too much all
1: right well it's, uh, it's such a fine line and again uh, different readers um like different levels but um you know in terms of a um firm answer i mean Radio speak, um, whether in the military, or the police, um, or, or whatnot, is I would suggest virtually incomprehensible to um, uh, to the average layman. Uh, as is as would like a briefing be, uh, or or, um, or or even you know sort of the casual conversation that you you'd find where uh, um, where individuals naturalize that kind of speak into their into their into their own vocabulary people just wouldn't understand a lot of it unless you've you've served in that unit and and it, it can be as specific as down to um down to a particular unit so uh, I, so you you, you were army, weren't you jr um, and you probably you probably oh, would not wow. know what the hell a, an air force pilot was on about if he was uh, if he's in um, if he was in radio contact with the, with, with with someone else uh, and so it's not just within, uh, you know, the difference between civilian and uh, military, it's the, the difference between individual units. Um, I mean, it, it is a really massively fine line in using them. I quite like using them. One of the ways I do use them sometimes, um, and not just acronyms, but, um, uh, but kind of military speak overall, is um, to add a sort of flavour of authenticity. So you know, similar to sort of how techno babble is sometimes used in um, in harder science fiction, you yeah, know, The reader reads it; they don't understand what the hell it's on about, but they they, they trust that the characters do know what they're on about uh, or what each other's on about. Um, so that that's one way it can be used. Um, uh, so for example, I've got a scene where um, we've got um, some uh, navy, or in my um, in the Great War, I've got a scene where uh, some navy um uh, personnel are having a card game with uh, some marines and um the, the marines are talking in, in sort of virtually one language and the navy and talking in another uh, and there is some obvious crossover there because they work together but you know they're still like what yeah you know, do you mind repeating that kind of thing that's that's one of the ways I, I kind of use it in sort of like casual conversation other ways i use it as i say is when they're like for example, I've got a scene where a, a pilot is launching off a carrier. Um, they're doing the the radio checks and uh, pre flights and whatnot, and they're just rattling through it really quickly. Um, and it's not there really to be understood uh, by the reader. What it's there for is to demonstrate that this is a is a uh, is a competent character who knows what they're on about. And then bang, they're, they're away. But you know, you can't have pages and pages of that. It has to be sort of like a like kind of a, a dive in, and then sort of Pull back out and then ready to go. So it's such a fine line, but I think it can be a really powerful tool to add authenticity, but just not pages and pages of it because I, I wouldn't even know what, say, an American cop is talking about, you know, if they were speaking in radio speak, and I'm, you know, I'm the British cop. So, um, so it's got to be carefully
0: done, um, but it, it can be powerful. Okay. All right, so I did a five-second pause, and we'll do one after you guys answer. Do you have time for two more questions, or do you need to wrap it up? I'm good. No, good, good for two, Yep. Yeah. Good for as many as you want. All right, then uh, we're <laughs> going to pause for Well, We went through most of them, so <laughs> give me just a second. All right, so now let's look at the genre writ large. Do you feel like we are in a boom period for military science fiction, or a bubble that's about to pop? I do know that after a certain Mr. Chris Fox wrote a book about writing to market and the how everybody can make gangbusters of cash in the military science fiction field, we did briefly see a, a influx of new authors. Uh, do you feel like that's going kind of uh, trend is going to continue, or will the genre uh, change? How, how do you think that's going to go, Ralph? Um,
1: There's no doubt it's a popular genre, um, and um, there's an expanding readership, but there's also a massively expanding authorship as well, um, and that can make it very difficult for um, new authors to um, sort of rise into prominence. I don't think it's about to pop. I think it's going to it's going to continue expanding. Um, I just think there's going to be a lot more uh, authors who are providing material uh, as well. It's okay, a good yeah. question.
2: Um, I'm not sure I can answer it. What I would say is that if it does pop, it will pop in the trad <laughs> pub, trad pub uh, arena, not in the independent arena. But with the caveat that again, because caveats are my thing. Um, the people who pursue what's hot in a genre are generally, well, it's not their passion. They're just pursuing what's hot. And I think if you have a passion for a genre and I have a passion for military settings, then I can build a reader base. And as long as I'm not boring and I have good characters people will buy my books. That's what I think. Okay. Uh, Tim?
3: Well, certainly there's a there's been a massive boom that has coincided with the, the rise of the Kindle. Uh, I think military science fiction itself has slightly come off its peak, but it's plateaued much higher than it was uh, 10 years ago. But I think what's happening is, Authors who sort of started perhaps military science fiction are pushing into adjacent areas of space opera, space fantasy, uh, science fiction romance even. Um, So the the people there, they're just spreading out. Um, And I I think that's that's a good thing. I think at one point, actually, it got a little bit uh, as if it was writing the same book. Um, In fact, specifically, Art Royal um, by Christopher Nuddle, But then I think just as I got worried it was going to just – Get caught up in the same same book every time. I think everybody sort of have now spread out and I've I've learned the craft perhaps a bit more. Uh, so yeah, it's definitely here to stay, uh, and it's still very very healthy genre.
0: Okay, and speaking of the genre, how do you think that military science fiction of today is different than it was in say the eighties or nineties? And those differences or lack thereof, them do they make it more exciting? Is it disappointing to you as the uh, the genre has evolved? Um, Ralph,
2: um, it's
1: interesting because I think you've got to take the overwhelming cultures of the time. So in the 80s, for sure, and uh, very early 90s, you had um, uh, it, it, you, know, you had uh, NATO and the West versus the East. So you tend to have uh, sort of stories which took kind of two large empires grinding against each other. Um, in the 90s, I think you tended to find a lot of fallen empire stuff uh, as, as the antagonists or even protagonists on occasion. Um, and, and now, obviously, post September the 11th, um, again, there's been a, um, a bit of a culture shift to the kind of um, war fighting that we, we have now. Um, you know, sort of manhunts uh, and uh, kind of invasion levels and more insidious enemies. Um so there, ha- there has been an evolution and, and of course you find it I, I find it interesting and the, the product which comes out of it exciting um And I think military science fiction again is a, is a really good window for exploring those conflicts and uh, and the mindsets of people involved in them. so I, I like the way that it the way that uh, military science fiction can, stay on point in exploring current affairs through through that lens. So, yes, in a simple one-word answer, yes, I find it
0: exciting. Okay. So, what about you, Ashley?
2: Repeat the question. I've kind of got lost track. Um, it's about changes in the
0: 80s. Yeah, the changes to the genre over the years, and do you uh, approve or disapprove? Do you like them, hate them? Well, your I don't know how old my
2: two fellow, uh, but our, our speakers are today, but I'm a bit older than perhaps most people, um, so I can I can remember back in the '60s and '70s, and um, there's definitely a change, uh, the wind of change, as Ralph would say, um, perhaps if he thought of that to say. Um, <laughs> You know,
1: I'll I yeah, yeah, go okay with that. It sounds far more eloquent than me, so uh, <laughs> thank you for ascribing that to me. <laughs>
2: right. So, you know, going back to the 60s, which is a bit earlier, uh, I mean, you'd have things, I'm going to call it general whoopass. you know, if it was a big-picture story, or, or private striving to succeed if it was a kind of down-and-dirty-in-the-trenches story. And obviously... Uh, there's always been a continuum between, you know, the, the big story with the generals and the, 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 the small stories with the privates. And, yeah, there's been a big culture change. So what was popular back then, say Sven Hassel and his uh, Legion of the Dam series or, or Leo Kessler's um, SS stories that he wrote, which are not science fiction, but they, they kind of embody the changes in culture. So, yeah, in the 70s, very much about uh, the Cold War, the big picture in terms of, you know, America versus the Ruskies. Now it's more about the small wars. I love it all. I, and I think there's um, room to for an author to, to write stories. Very fertile. Um, You don't have to repeat um, the battle for Rourke's Drift or even the Battle of Britain, because there's been so many interesting conflicts around the world that can serve as inspiration for future what if stories. You know, um, what if all our fighting is going to be in urban uh, environments like London, New York, wherever? You know, will that change what we need? Well, undoubtedly, it will. Um, tanks are not very good uh, within a built up area. So we might see mecha, you know, combat armor suits that people you know, wear to protect them, to, to make them mini tanks to, to go around the battlefield and survive uh, a very stressful environment. Or we might just see automation with uh, artificial intelligence and uh, remote-driven uh, weapons. Though there are problems with that, because as soon as you come up against a peer equivalent, because most of the battles in the last 20, 30 years have been uh, a disparity between one side and the other, technologically speaking, uh, whereas World War Two was against a, a peer combatant. So, if we go back to peer, peer combatants, yeah, it's going to change, change the type of war stories that people will write. That's it.
0: Okay. Ken?
3: Well, I'm going to take a slightly uh, different perspective here, uh, and that's of the publishing industry itself. So, I mean, I, I started to come involved with uh, the British publishing side of things uh, in the early 2000s, uh, and then very closely tracked from 2011 what was going on in the independent publishing over on the board of kindle uh and it's it's things have moved very 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 rapidly in just a few years at sort of internet speed and one of the things i think is crucial for military science fiction is that outside of one or two places perhaps bane books i don't think uh, military science fiction was treated with a great deal of respect or was greatly understood by the publishers who actually published them and I didn't mean that people weren't uh, writing great science fiction, so people such as uh, Ian Douglas uh, over at Harper Voyager, but I don't think the people who published him really understood what he was doing. He just seemed to sell books, and he's our token military science fiction person. Um, and I think that's that's a big difference. The people who are writing uh, science fiction now, and very successfully as professionals, have got a much wider variety of backgrounds, including a lot more people now uh, with military background we've said uh authenticity is an important thing and i think there's a lot more of that around for those who are looking for it than perhaps there was just a a few short years ago so that's my my change
0: okay well that was was all of the questions i had prepared uh is there anything you think we should have talked about before before i wrap this up um tim
3: no i think we've covered it really well
1: Right, Absolutely. Yeah, uh, we've um, we've explored lots, and it's been an honour to be
2: uh, involved in this panel.
0: All right, Ashley, did, was there anything we missed? You got to got, talk about your lovely
2: mecca. I mean, one thing we could say is uh, iconic
0: books. You know? Okay. Well, that was the last okay. Um, <laughs> uh, yeah. See, she's a genius, people. All right. So uh, we'll ask you, since you were just talking and you mentioned it, uh, what do you believe are iconic books in the military sci-fi well, genre? Ash? Again, being a boring old uh, grognard um, when it comes to military
2: science fiction and science fiction in general, um, I've got a bunch of people that I, I think people the readers are not reading nowadays. So uh, Ian Douglas, uh, though actually people are reading him. Bill Keith is his real name the Heritage Trilogy. And in fact, all his Marine books are really, really good, because uh, he used to be a Marine corpsman himself, so, you know, authenticity is just, you know, in there. Um, but there's some other good books, like uh, Passage at Arms by Glenn Cook, which is uh, a space, space combat, which is just awesome. Uh, we All Died at Breakaway Station, where the title gives away the ending, but it's a great read. And, you know, if you, if you haven't read it, read it. Um, the Orphanage series by Robert Butner, Again, a former military person. And we've already mentioned Mark Kluse, but, uh, yeah, front lines. Brilliant.
0: Yeah, Marco does okay. Yeah, for, uh, for well, term. no, he does okay. For he, he's, uh, he's, he's former military, isn't he, I, I, I believe? Yeah, he was in the uh, German army before he immigrated to the States. I, um. All right. So what about you, Tim? Are there any iconic books you believe everybody should read?
3: Uh, yeah, The Forever War by Joe Haldeman, that I think Ralph mentioned earlier. Uh, Crow, the first of the Union series by Philip Richards, which is uh, a very, very tight, um, tightly written, as in uh, the people fighting don't really know what's going on in, in terms of the big battle, uh, which is quite exhausting to read, but very rewarding. Uh, Legionnaire, uh, the first Galaxy's Edge book. Uh, Nicole and Jason Ansback of course, uh, and The VCs, which was uh, a military science fiction series that I read in 2000 AD comic back in uh, 79 to 80, which is collected in graphic novel form. So The VCs, 2000 AD, read it.
0: Yeah, great book. <laughs> okay. Ralph?
1: Um, I think people have mentioned uh, – um my natural picks uh i'd say tim c taylor then um ashley pollard ashley uh, someone wouldn't go wouldn't go wrong in uh, in uh, in going for their I books um marco cluse is is probably my number one i can't recommend him highly enough um i, I, I love those books um bigly um one else um it's a word it's a, it's a word um I've I've got a soft spot for Stephen Moss's uh, Fear trilogy as well. If um, people want to see a kind of um, development of uh, or a hum- or an alien invasion from humans having to deal with it today to um, defeating a huge armada uh, of alien craft, but in a very very realistic way, um, that that feels really really ac- that that's an excellent book. If people want want something with a bit of um, a bit of uh, a British flavor to it, um, considering the panel. Um, there is um, Nick Pope's uh, Operation Thunderchild, I think it's called. The Operation Lightning Strike is the first one, and Operation Thunderchild is the second. Um, they're getting on a bit now, but um, again, they're really excellent alien invasion stories, but in a very hyper-realistic uh, setting um thoroughly enjoyed that and what's uh, more that that chap was um he was he was um a senior civil servant in the british government who who uh, apparently had some responsibility for investigating ufo's in uh, in in the early day in the 80s and 90s um who else i think i think every everyone's pretty much been mentioned um uh, josh hayes um, does, uh, does an excellent book, um, uh, Echoes of Valour, um, a kind of black hawk down in space sort of story, which has an interesting take on on these things. Um, it's sort of a, a police investigation, but during a mission that's gone wrong. Um, uh, yeah, there's, there's so many out
0: there um, and so many excellent ones as well. That's a good problem to have. All right, so as we bring this to a close, and uh, we appreciate you, dear listeners, sticking with us for the entire two hours. Ralph, how can listeners find you? Um, well,
1: obviously, Amazon is uh, Amazon and Audible are uh, two uh, excellent places. Uh, just uh, simply type in my name, and uh, uh, and my books will come out, as well as uh, a number of anthologies that I've um, written in. Um, I've got a, a website again. Um, Fairly, fairly sort of simplistic landing page but one can uh, get on um um uh, uh, one can so get on my mailing list through there so ralphkern.com um what else is the oh, i'm um a, a, a semi-frequent contributor to key straight medium um which i've I'd, I'd suggested quite a few people know about in the military science fiction fandom circles um And uh, finally, I've got a Facebook page as well. Um, Just type in my name and it'll come up. Um, uh, One of the sort of side notes is I have an excellent um, artist who works with me, uh, Jamie Glover, who um, has realized a lot of the the, um, uh, equipment, mechs, uh, spaceships and whatnot in uh, the Great War series. And uh, we showcase them on there. Um, uh, And yeah, I think that's everything.
0: Jamie Glover does amazing art. I've, I've used him before as well. All right. Well, Ashley, how I have an uh, Amazon
2: uh, author page, both in the UK and the US. Uh, just type my name, Ashley R. Pollard, into it and you should find that. Um, Facebook, again, type my name in. You should come up with my author page. You can follow me on Twitter at Ashley R. Pollard. You're getting a theme here. And... Uh, <laughs> I have uh, a website, though it's it, it's just a blogspot, again, Ashley R. Pollard, and you can find me on Goodreads, too. Um, so just search my name. You know my
0: name? There you go. Outstanding. And Tim, how can listeners find you?
3: Uh, check out humanlegion.com, uh, where... Not only can you look at the various pretty pictures, uh, but you can join the Legion uh, and receive lots of exclusive stories through all my series, including The Four Horsemen.
0: Outstanding. And you can find us on our website at www.sfshenanigans.com. Our Twitter is at SFS underscore show, Sierra Foxtrot Sierra underscore show. Our email is podcast at sfshenanigans.com. And our Facebook group is facebook.com backslash groups backslash SF shenanigans. Thank you for spending some of your precious time with us for Chris Winder and Suska Smalls on J.R. Hanley. And this was the sci-fi shenanigans podcast. We'll be back next week at the same time where we'll indulge our love of space and all things that go boom. All right. Thank you for sticking with us through that uh, archived episode that was in the, uh, in the digital memory hole that we found we thought you'd enjoy it so thank you for spending some of your precious time with us for nick garber and doc seska i am jr hanley and this was the archive for the blasters and blades podcast we'll be back at our regular scheduled time where we'll indulge our love of nerd culture cheesy jokes and all things that go boom